0: Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Dutiful Future on Radio at Warwick. Thanks for anyone who happens to be listening to this on the very much first tester show. So uh, I'm going to start this off just with a little bit about me and what the show aims to be. Uh, my name's Hugh Smiley. Um, this show is called Dutiful Future. It's also the name of my blog and where I put my articles that I write for various different... Um, Student publications, mostly politics stuff, but also some mixed stuff. The website's obviously dutifulfuture.com. Uh, this is going to be a companion show to the blog. So occasionally I'll be talking about what I've written there and sort of expanding on it um, in a you know more long form uh, medium. But also the show is going to have a greater focus on guests. Um, it is going to be a, a show, unlike other politics shows that you would often get from student radio or these sort of things, it's going to be much more about a guest-focused thing. So they will come on, they have a topic they want to talk about, it'll be more of an interview format where they can explain and discuss what the key issue it is for them. It could be anything from American politics to you know, the gaming industry, anything very specific which they would like to discuss. So each week's going to be very different, um, so I would entice people, if they don't like this one, to please you know tune into the next one. Um, so a little bit about me, uh, I am a second year PPE student, um, I've done radio for a little bit now, and this is my first own show. This episode, though, it's not, I'm not going to have a guest, this is more of just a precursor an introduction to the kind of style and what I aim to be doing, and a sort of introduction into what I think and what I'm interested in, um... Yeah, so this is the plan. Uh, primarily, it's going to be very much a, an American politics show. Um, if anyone knows me, they would clearly, clearly know that. It's quite obvious is what I n- never shut up about. Um, and there's only really been one very major uh, news event uh, very recently in American politics. And that is war were declared. Um, not literally, but we have a lot of, there's a lot of problems going on right now um anyone who's been paying attention especially very minorly even if uh would know that uh, a couple probably yeah, was it a couple of days a couple of days ago um the united states assassinated um kasem sulmani i believe it's pronounced i'm probably butchering that but it's irrelevant uh he was killed in a drone strike whilst on a mission in iraq um the official reasons given were that he was planning some sort of attack so it was a preemptive um killing of uh, Iran's basically second man in charge, that one of their top military generals and a very important figure in the Iranian government. Um, and this obviously uh, sent shockwaves through um, international community in many different forms, everything from world leaders condemning or world leaders frankly ignoring, all the way down to lots and lots of very scared memes about how we're all going to die in a war. Um, and I think I'd, t- I'd like to take this opportunity to, um, sort of give some of the background behind, uh, some of the modern history behind Iran and America's relationship, as if this isn't something you've really thought about before, um, it would really come out of the blue. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really think that strongly as, at least in very recent years, American Iran being the major, I guess, beef in international politics, especially with all of the exciting stuff of North Korea very recently. Um... So, we'll start off. Really, this relationship uh, and this sort of conflict began in 1953 where the U.S. overthrew uh, an elected Iranian government. Uh, The man elected was called Mohammad Mossadegh. uh, He was elected in Iran in 1953, and he had plans to nationalize Iranian oil. This was of great concern to um, American and um, United Kingdom interests, as that's where they got their cheap oil from. Uh, and Mossadegh's plan was to nationalize and give the profits to the people. Uh, so in order to maintain this, um, basically, oil line and this, you know, very important connection, the US and the UK overthrew the Iranian government and placed put in place, uh, as known, the new system of the Shah, um, which, of course, allowed the UK and the US to continue getting super cheap oil. All's well and not so ends well. Uh, and this was more or less fine in terms of a western perspective until in 1979 um the shah was ousted uh in an islamic resolute uh, revolution um and then was replaced by a shia theocratic state um the the one of the primary reasons actually why this revolution was uh An Islamic one. Why Islam was at the core of the revolution was because one of the only places the Shah wasn't spying on people was in mosques. So that's where they congregated. That's where they formed the plans, and that's when they eventually made the plan to overthrow the government. And ever since then, um, the U.S. has been eyeing up a regime change war in Iran, an aggressive, uh, an aggressive conquest to basically re-establish a puppet state in Iran, as they attempted to do in 1953. Um, and now we are seeing the rearing of this relatively short term conflict in, I guess, um, international, uh, global perspective, perspective, um, with America starting to make more aggressive moves. Uh, and there's, there's probably two main reasons why um, America, in an official, well, not really an official, but in a like, more grounded sense, would want to uh, create the puppet state. Number one, obviously, as mentioned earlier, was oil a lot of money there. And then number two is most likely because Iran is in a geopolitical strategic space in the world and they are currently aligned strongly with Russia and China, which would make um, make them, obviously, they, that's not what the U.S. wants. The U.S. doesn't want them to be friends. They want them to be friends with them. Hence why you know, it would be very strategic for them to be able to take, uh, take over and in, install some form of their own puppet government. Uh, And then last night, um, I found out at about 11, trying to get to sleep and then couldn't sleep because of the sheer surprise, or less surprise, I was quite expecting this, but sheer terror, that Iran finally responded to um, the killing of uh, Soleimani by um, using ballistic missiles to strike an American air base, or military base, sorry, in uh, Iraq. Um, The initial reaction was, oh, God, this is it. That's the response. Um, I remember about 12 hours ago when talking to someone about this, that I said, I said I thought there was going to be a war and they asked me very clearly, what have you been smoking? Uh, Iran would never respond because um, they'd simply get blown out of the water and it hasn't been the case. Um, in this situation, uh, no American citizens were killed, only Iraqi ones who were on the military base at the time, um, which has led to a lot of people in, especially in american politics dismissing it outright which is frankly quite offensive the fact that it's not u.s citizens being killed means that it's fine it doesn't matter it's totally irrelevant it's frankly a, a ridiculous one um so i think the first thing i would like to point out is definitely that this isn't a completely out there random 1v1 skirmish this has been a long-term goal. Excuse me. This has been a long term goal for the United States government to aggressively uh, overtake, sorry, overtake, um, aggressively take over um, the Iranian government. And I think anyone who thinks otherwise is not simply paying attention. Um, It's very important to recognize the dangers that this could pose to global peace and frankly, to continuing pointless, endless regime change wars um a lot of people have been pointing out that this shares a lot of similarities with the build up to the iraq war and i would agree in a sense so i think part of the reason why they're so easy to compare um in a very quick sense that we can instantly say oh this is the same is that what happened over a year before the iraq war uh the trump administration has attempted to do in about 24 hours um you know, before the Iraq War, there was a year of build-up of scaremongering and, I guess, propaganda to a certain extent about Iraq and about their relationships with, uh, you know, um, the 9/11 attacks and other things. Despite the fact that there wasn't very much at all, um, but they 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 put the, put the graft in as as to put it in a, in a Love Island way, in which they established over a long period of time the um, supposed dangers of Iraq and why we need to invade them. People are less going to be much less likely to believe um, the same scaremongering tactics of Iran as this hasn't been built up over a long period of time. This is a totally new occurrence um, that is, has that is happened. It, it, it went from barely hearing about them, except for around you know, the Iran nuclear deal time, to suddenly them being everywhere. And it was everything. And they were the, the biggest dangers to American interests. Um which, frankly, is is quite scary. Um, I'd also like to point out, for my own pure vanity, if you dial back the clocks, I would probably say about a year from now sounds about right. Um, when I did a different radio show, um, I said, in uh, when I co-hosted, I believe there is going to be a war with Iran, uh, American Iran, within the next year and a half. Um, quite a bold statement, but I think I'm getting I'm getting pretty close. You know, it's kind of like when you when you watch a football game and the team you're playing uh, you know the team you support are playing but you bet on both sides so you don't feel sad if i have a result that's where i was going for uh, and it's primarily because john bolton was in, was uh was part of the cabinet at the time and was his well, it was a national security advisor i believe or well, he was very close to trump in some some manner i think national security advisor and he is probably the biggest hawk you could possibly imagine uh he he's never met a war he didn't like um he his entire aim and his entire journey in politics has been to have regime chain wars and one of his big targets was Iran since day one and that's why i felt that was going to be a problem and when he left i had a little celebration i had a great time when he got kicked out oh great the warmonger has gone huzzah um uh, <laughs> to put it in a terrible manner but um really at the time i i'd there was. There's still so many hawks around him. Pompeo, for one, is also a massive neocon hawk who is also desperate to, you know, to have a have a nice little war. Um, so my prediction still stands. I guess maybe official war hasn't been declared, but most, um, I guess, commentators or pundits or people who know or care a lot about this sort of issues or know a lot about them said, if Iran respond in any meaningful manner. Um, there would be a war because it's there's simply the you know trump is never going to not take bait he said from day one if they respond in any in any way we are going to go straight in for an attack uh, and potentially start a war um, which is quite a scary thing to think and now they have had this response you could debate on whether it was as meaningful i guess from an american's perspective because they only care about their own citizens and their own people but um i would still say it's quite meaningful to attack an american american military base so this is this is a big a big deal and a quite a strong response and their point was afterwards they said this was us if you respond we will go after your allies i.e. saudi arabia and israel uh and if if they did so in any further way that that's war that's war declared Gondor calls for aid. That's a, that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, um, so and that is the that is the problem here. We are teetering on the edge of war. Uh, they were always going to respond around. There's no way they couldn't. There's no way you can not respond to one of your top leaders, one of your top military generals being assassinated. I mean, the most basic thought experiment is imagine if it was the other way around. Imagine if uh, a state such as China assassinated a top U.S. military general it would be, we would have, planes would be ready, bombs would be ready, the, the, it would be war within a few hours. And the fact that it's expected in another in a different way simply because America's more powerful or has a greater military is frankly ridiculous. If America wants the world to abide by international law, they have to abide by it themselves. And that's simply something they are not doing at this t- at this moment in time, disappointingly. Um, it, is, it is quite a chaotic situation to say the least. Um... Uh, And I think it's also important to point out the sort of the intense moral confusion or the ethical confusion that people have been ignoring uh, in this situation. So, for example, um, some of Trump's tweets, he basically said he would target in airstrikes and in bombings, civilian sites, heritage sites. Uh, So heritage sites uh, meaning civilian areas, which is obviously a a massive war crime, something which the U.S. obviously isn't... uh, too opposed to be doing sometimes, but um, a very strong war crime and threatening civilian areas Uh, whilst you cut over to the other side with the the Iranian government and, you know, even Hezbollah saying, um, we we have no quarrel with the American people. We would not target the American people in any manner. We would only target the American government and those, I guess how they would put it, like attacking us as in American military. And it's a very strange situation to see... um, an american government in the you know this recently you know now attempting to take the moral high ground when their leader is saying we would target your civilians and the other side are saying very clearly no we will not this is only about your leaders cuz they're attacking us um it, it is a it, it's a it's a phenomenal situation but i think it is also important to point out that um no one is arguing, at least no one on my side of this issue, as in no one on the, um, the I guess, uh, the anti-war side of the issue is in any way siding with Iran in a sense, or is in any way supporting the government. Iran has not a very nice government. They're a, they're, they're a terrible regime. They have a lot of, um, they do a lot of domestic oppression, but that doesn't translate to them being the automatic bad guys and us being the automatic good guys in this situation. America has been has been clearly aggressive. I mean, over the last few years, they've had such strong sanctions, even blocking medicine. Which uh, it was a, uh, a you, not a United States, a United Nations Human uh, Court of Human Rights said to the U.S. You can't. You can have sanctions on Iran, whatever, but you can't block medicine. That, that's, that's, that's illegal. That's not allowed. You can't block medicine from going into a country because that obviously directly affects citizens. And you know what the U.S. did? In one of the, the, the most bold plays I believe I've seen in international politics in recent years, they simply said, okay, that's fine. Left the court kept doing it and said, what are you going to do about it? And of course, they're not going to do anything because the US is a, a scary big boy with a stranglehold on uh, world politics. Um, but where do I think this is going to go? And why do I think this is going to happen? I think are the two big questions. Where do I think it's going to go? I think I've probably made it kind of clear. I think there's probably going to be a war and I don't want there to be a war. It's not going to be a fun time. The only upside is I don't think it's going to be similar to iraq or at least, or even you know something like people say in you know in in, in memes it's not going to be like world war 3 because this isn't this isn't world war 2 this isn't the nazis versus europe there's not it's not as clear who the good guys are i mean world war 2 had probably the most the most like com- comedically awful people on in in history you couldn't get a more definitively bad uh, bad person or bad enemy to have to face against whilst here there really isn't a clear good and Bad, So a lot of nations are going to have to almost definitely stay out of it. I mean, even the UK, who, you know, obviously in Iraq, were head and shoulders diving for head first into the conflict, have been somewhat hesitant with um, the official uh, Conservative government line being, um, we're not glad, sorry, we are, we're not going to mourn his death, but we want to deescalate immediately so even that is a commitment to not going into some form of conflict which i appreciate uh as i was very concerned that this sort of relationship would be a similar one to blair bush and in, in a desperation to maintain it and uphold it uh to the point of committing uk troops into a uh, pointless war for terrible reasons um uh, and then why do i think this is happening so there are there are a lot of like speculative reasons tinfoil hat time uh, the Hail Mary reasons, as I, I often put them, of why I think this sort of conflict is coming about. And I think um, number one of my crack crackpot crazy ideas, um, which is more of a funny one, I would say, is probably um, uh, the fact that... So, for example, during uh, Clinton's impeachment trial, he uh, did a controversial airstrike in Africa uh as a means of distraction essentially and it did work and it could be that but maybe not that once again that's that's the Hail mary it could be as an attempted at distraction um generally you know going into a war can help a president's um approval numbers because you know they seem to be fighting for the country and all oh, the you know it, it's good passing over you don't want to change leadership in the middle of a war because you know it's going to change everything gonna go crazy but even then, I don't think that's going to be as strong as a factor in this specific case because with Bush, once again, it'd been established for a year. They they allowed his opinion polls to get up to you know, the realms of eighty uh, percent, phenomenally high levels of um, of opinion polling in order to go into this war. Trump hasn't got the same situation, and I think he'll lose a lot of his moderates, a lot of people who are kind of on the fence, but they think, oh, I like you know he's he's throwing he's throwing rocks in places, he's messing things up, that sort of thing. I think they'll start to lose him because on his campaign trail, something people quite liked, was his anti-war rhetoric. He said numerous times we have to get the troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq, end these endless wars, whilst he has increased drone strikes by something like 400% and is now attempting to start a lovely, lovely war, something we all enjoy thoroughly, apparently, according to him, I'm sure. Um, And there's also things, like I said earlier, there's been long-term ambitions for uh, America with Iran, which are very clear to see. And I think that is probably that is the primary motivator, at least of people around him, because this this problem doesn't didn't start and won't end with Trump. This isn't him crazily wanting to attack a country. This has been a long-term stra- strategy and a plan by the United States government, which Trump is simply now facilitating in a very direct manner. Uh, so I would say keep your eyes open don't let yourself be deceived and walked into a war like with iraq where we now know for certain that we were lied to for for so long and there hasn't been really any repercussions for those that happened so be very skeptical and pay attention to what is actually happening and whenever a statement is made i would say think about some evidence if they don't don't come to you with evidence when they make a massive claim I, i doubt it i'd put some doubt um Okay, after that very light-hearted 20 minutes, I think it's time for my first ever break on Dutiful Future, how exciting. Hello, and I am back. Um, that was a really good song, actually. I've only listened to that a couple of times. Anyway, um, back to the fun times of politics. After the super exciting and super uplifting uh, um, coverage of Iran and the uh, the march to war um we're not going to be jumping very far from america to america where we talk about the democratic primary uh the updates and what's been happening basically um as we build up to who is going to face Donald Trump in 2020 um i've got a lot of things written down here a lot of plans coming in to so essentially be oh um i'm going to cover the last debate uh and then i'm going to cover who we've lost so far the the immemorium for the democratic primary which which beautiful poor innocent souls joined the race and have now unfortunately dropped out which which beautiful boys have we lost far too early and which people have we lost to take the mick out of in all the debates um so the last debate um was quite an interesting one i think it was probably one of the better run debates um they allowed a bit more talk between them and it was much more it was the best one in terms of having clearly defined political ideologies for each person on stage. This was one of the first times we were able to see um, the candidates square off directly. And it was something which, if you weren't one who spent, you know, very much, paid very much attention to um, politics, uh, you would have a greater understanding of where people lie. You could clearly see where Bernie is, you could clearly see where Pete Buttigieg is, and you can clearly see where um, various other candidates are and where they sort of lie. When in other debates, since the issues are often kept away from policy, or there's less of a facilitation for direct conflict in a sense, it's hard, those lines can be very blurred between who is who and what they think. What were they going to do if they won? Rather than just saying, uh, Trump's, Trump's a meanie and I don't like him. Um, the official, I would say, uh, rankings and polling, not pollings, but the official like outcome and ranking and sort of judge of who won each debate, sorry, each debate, the last debate, uh, from the main coverage, I believe it was MSNBC was the main one, but then other news people cover, obviously, was generally Amy Klobuchar. They, she was generally the one who they were like, oh, she had a great day. She was amazing. We love her whatever um for me personally um as a massive bernie fan um he's probably my favorite politician i do think he won but <laughs> it's important to point out that i i have said in the past in debates he's been in he hasn't won or he hasn't done as well Or i have been able to have criticisms of him but this is one i think he was particularly uh had a strong performance in uh i think um biden actually had probably his best performance so far Um, as someone who I really don't like Biden I think he's he's certainly slowing down in more manners I think he's more likely to drop out of this mortal realm before he drops out of uh, the election in some form Um, he's certainly not all there but uh, in this debate he seemed more like his older self his younger self I guess in a sense Um, what he was back when he slapped up Paul Ryan in a debate um, he was far more he was quick he was more quick he was more on the ball he didn't ramble too much he seemed to be more uh there and more in place and a more commanding performance that you would expect from someone who was a seasoned debater and what has been a statesman for quite a while um but the caveat to that is whilst i think his performance was better it wasn't great it was it was decent like probably a, a you know i don't like putting numbers to these sort of things but if i had to i'd probably say around a 6 it was it was a a bit above average it was a, it was a decent performance if you were a biden fan and you watched that you go oh good he did great if you were someone who like most people on my side of politics who thought biden slipping you'd be like okay he's not gone he's probably slipping but he's not he's not gone yet he's still doing something um, and he did have some you know, um, I would say competent back and forth with certain candidates about certain issues. Uh, Pete Buttigieg did badly. Um, he really did not cope well with this sort of much more direct debate environment in this climate of more direct issue-based conflict, especially with um, people... Uh, being very direct about his um, high level of basically high money donors, his his average donation is very high, meaning he he you know has more wealthy donors. He's not really a man of the people, unlike you know, for example Bernie, who has very low average donation and um mostly gets off mostly gets his funding from you know working people so he's not he's not uh doesn't take pack money He doesn't take corporate money doesn't take billionaire money unlike Edge. I mean there's a great story of Bernie where there was a there was a billionaire a more progressively minded one I can't remember who it was it was a very wealthy man it could have been just below a billionaire to be fair but um he offered Bernie about a hundred dollars and uh out of pure principle their campaign said right thank you so much for this but we do not want to take your money as we are a campaign for the people and we do not take money from uh corporate interests and billionaires, we don't want to be upholding to them even if it's a insignificant amount of money than what is given to other candidates um andrew yang had a good performance i like yang seems like a nice guy um he's he has some odd positions about certain issues and he's been a bit dishonest in certain areas i would definitely make I would say would be important to point out. For example, Medicare for all. In a lot of his ads, uh, one with his wife, for example, she directly used the term Medicare for all as what is needed. But his Medicare, his medical plan, at least its first stage, is very much not Medicare for all. It's not even a public option. And I feel like that was a bit dishonest. But he had a strong performance. He brought up a lot of issues which are often overlooked in American primaries. Excuse me. Um, there was the question asked about why he's the only candidate of colour on stage, and he gave a strong answer. Uh, and what he does well, Andrew Yang, is he, he's one of the few politicians who can tell jokes and they'll land most of the time, because he, he, they don't get much talking time. And I think he's learned from his first uh, debate, where he had a very bad performance, because he didn't get to speak much. And when he did, he couldn't really make his points clear. Because I don't think he's he was as used to a short term format, but he's basically gone the other way and gone for he's gotten a lot better at making his points punchy and straight to the, straight to the point, as well as being funny. He, he has a lot of funny lines and he, he makes a lot of good jokes, which is impressive for for a politician of any form. Maybe because he has Charles Gambino in his um, campaign team now, which is quite quite interesting actually. Yeah, Donald Glover recently joined up as his like creative advisor or something like that. Um, There was a good article about him being uh, Don Glover being his secret weapon in some form. Um, No, but he but I think Andrew Yang did as well as well was he brought up issues which are normally totally ignored and people go, oh, I never really thought about that before. But that's that's very interesting. Like, you know, he's, he's a proponent of basically legalizing or at least decriminalizing all drugs. And go into a more Portugal or a, I think I believe it's Switzerland it is Switzerland a Switzerland a Swiss type system, which I I personally am in favour of, and I think he he is good at bringing issues which seem to be so far out of the Overton window, things like UBI and things like um, legalising all drugs, and you can bring them so strongly into the discussion. Um, you know he he I think it was probably primarily him and uh, partly Bernie who made the opioid crisis and the opioid issue such a strong one where even candidates like Beto O'Rourke and you know, Pete Boucher were quite strong on that issue and had, had good opinions about not sending people to prison simply for, um, you know, having a problem. Um, and that's something I think was quite impressive. Um, people I haven't really mentioned, Amy Klobuchar, I don't think she actually had a very good debate. She talked a lot. I think the problem is people who think that she had a great time, had a very good debate, they confuse talking a lot with talking good, <laughs> with talking well. She didn't really say anything. She she didn't offer anything. Um, she simply would just she would just say platitudes, talk about how Trump's bad. And for some reason, she always brings up how she's from the Midwest. It's I find it quite confusing. Every other sentence is like, "Well, growing up in the Midwest or being from the Midwest," and it's like, "Oh, okay. What do you want to do? Like, what is it that you want to action?" You know, it's it's phenomenal, and it's and it's um, important to recognise that Bernie has has done done well out of this out of the last debate. I've not really gone through it, actually why I thought he 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 was had a very good debate. I think this was his. I think this was probably his best performance so far. Not purely in that what he what he said was good, as I, I as obviously I think it normally is, but every issue or most issues in that debate flowed through Bernie. He was the, the 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 center or the core of that debate. Every issue was one that he that was his issue, or every issue was something that he was prominently involved in. And a lot of candidates, obviously, because since he's you know pushing for top, were were strongly attempting to um, target him specifically and question him specifically, which he was very good at handling. As well as him being more comfortable and finally, uh, from my perspective. Being more willing to be more direct and uh, attack other candidates for what they've done, he had a, he had a great line about Biden and um, Buttigieg's um, billionaires, uh, their billionaire donors, and saying, you know, Pete's a competitive guy. I'm sure he's going to catch up on how many billionaire donors Biden has, and that was amazing. That went very well. That went down very well with the crowd, which is always good to see. And um, and he has now raised as much money as a sitting president um in fundraising not only considering you know considering in any other manner that's that's phenomenal that's an insane amount normally sitting presidents would get way more because obviously you know lobbyists but he's raised that much um without taking corporate money and that is a phenomenal achievement and it really does show to everyone that when Pete Buttigieg says oh you know, I have to take this money if I want to be on a living playing field. We can't, we can't start the fight with one hand behind our back. Uh, I believe that was his, his quote. That that's simply not true. You can go far in politics without taking bribes, essentially. Uh, and that's something which I think was very prominent out of the last debate. Um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite an interesting debate. Some of the questions were a bit, eh, a bit meh uh, to put it in a very analytical manner. Which um, I mean, most of the debates are a bit weird because. They're, just, they're, just, they're not very—they're run very well. They don't really need to speak any much. But um, anyway, um, moving on from that, uh, from the last debate, it feels like ages ago now. Um, it's time to move on to the fun segment of who have we lost and who were they? Uh, which, which poor innocent souls have we lost in the campaign so far? And should you care about them? Or were they a big loss? Um, I believe the most recent exit was Julian Castro. Um, Julian Castro was an interesting one. He launched his campaign attempting to – basically a campaign that was very similar to Obama and was trying to present himself as that sort of um, you know responsible, strong-talking um, statesman, someone who is likable. And it didn't go their own very well because politics has changed. You can't simply give platitudes and say, I want everyone to be nice and expect to go far. That's just not the world we live in now. Um, so he started off in a more of like a centrist line but as the campaign went on he adopted a lot more or at least he espoused more progressive views and i think that was either because he saw his ship sinking from trying to be the reasonable like middleman, uh and thought you know what i'm just gonna say what i actually think or i'm gonna i'm gonna say what i actually think which would be good because you know i want people to be progressive if they are or he went down the more route of well, who's climbing this who's climbing in this contest? Who are the, the rising the rising people, the people who are really pushing? It's it's more the progressive end, really. Well Bernie is the biggest riser, but then obviously more some centrists are climbing. But really so you probably try to jump on that ship and be the young alternative for progressive politics. Be the one who's saying, Look, I like what Bernie says, but look at him, he's old, ah, he had a heart attack, you know, um, that didn't succeed, so I would say overall, Julian Castro's a bit of a loss. he had some he had some decent debate performances. He certainly wasn't bad. I don't think he was a terrible candidate. I just think he didn't really offer enough he He didn't it was a political misstep to not come out fighting. He wanted to be the reasonable the the wound healer. that's not where we're at right now. You need someone who is bold and is strong and is attempting to be you know, revolutionary in a sense. Uh, so that's that's one gone. Number two, Kamala Harris. Um, I'm not a fan of her. Um, I think she's terrible. I think she's not a very good person and I'm not a fan in any means. Um, I was surprised to see her go, actually, because um, she was sort of climbing. She was doing well until Tulsi Gabbard cut her down in the debate and ended basically any prospect she had, which was a beautiful moment and I thoroughly enjoyed because she does have a terrible record, Kamala Harris. I mean, I'm sure I'll, I can go far more in depth into it in the future, but she has an awful record and has done some terrible things as prosecutor um, and simply isn't a progressive. She was trying to kind of hide as one, but she didn't really have any policies and everything she did was very... Uh, they're a, bit, a bit dodgy not a fan she's not a big loss she didn't really offer much to the debate so she didn't really give anything different you know there was that the only thing we're, we're losing now is her ranting about um, how Trump should be banned from Twitter when um, she she tried to attack Elizabeth Warren for saying if you don't like Trump as much as I don't like Trump why don't you um, why you know why aren't you more uh, why why aren't you calling as as i am to ban him from twitter which was frankly hilarious (laughs) and and the biggest political misstep i think i've seen in a long time because it got no traction and was it it was hilarious um so she isn't a big loss i wouldn't be surprised if she made a deal with biden to say i'll leave i'll drop out and i'll i'll be your vp if you win or maybe even maybe even someone like warren i could see that maybe because warren does have the tendency to try and heal wounds in that sense um yeah i was surprised and i don't think she's gone i think we'll be seeing her soon um next up Marion williamson i don't have much to say about her apart from you know she she obviously couldn't harness the power of love hard enough um she was great she was the middle-aged white mom Mom, let's put it American, um, who rocked up and had all these solutions to problems. Like, oh, we got to align our chakras, and oh, of course, of course, you know, I don't get on with you. You're a Gemini, I'm a Libra. It was. Uh, I loved her. She was. She was so nice, and she was so strange, and I didn't get what she was doing. I didn't really know what she wanted. All I knew was she really wanted to harness the power of love in some form or another. And that was hilarious to me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so that's a shame, I guess, because it's pretty funny. She wouldn't get into any other debates. I mean, it's simply, she she literally couldn't qualify for anything else. And plus money, I imagine. Similar with Castro, he, he couldn't push further anymore. Whilst Camilla probably could have a bit, but she'd lost a lot of traction. And then finally, Beto O'Rourke, who at the beginning of this campaign, was supposed to be the mainstream media's uh he was he was their horse he was the one that they were like okay let's let's puff him up a bit let's give him some you know we'll give him some magazine covers make him seem like a nice guy you know um he can speak he can speak well he got some notoriety for fighting against Ted Cruz and not doing too badly even though he did lose but um he was the definition of a manufactured rise and a realistic fall he was built up uh, by the media and the public just didn't didn't take to it because it's the same thing as people like Castro. He didn't do much. He didn't push very hard. He he simply just wasn't um, he wasn't there. He didn't do anything very original, uh, and his debate performances weren't amazing. He definitely struggled with the format. I feel to a certain extent because he was getting outflanked from the left and because he tried to position were more centrist, but he had a progressive past. It was very strange his his uh, campaign. Um, and I think he's, in in terms of the big players, he's probably, he would have been the biggest to drop down so far if you would asked me in the beginning of the campaign, but by the time he was gone, it was, it was expected. He, he was similar to Kamala Harris where he had a big rise, then he, then he dropped off because even though the media loved him, he didn't have that play with the, with the public. People didn't really like him. He wasn't very interesting. Uh, yeah, so that, that is, those are, I believe, most or at least the, the big names we've lost out so far. I don't think even Tim Kane no, not Tim Kane, I can't remember his name. Rob Delaney, no, not Rob Delaney. How am I blanking on this? It doesn't matter. Um, I believe that's most at least the bigger names who have dropped out so far. Um, it's bad when I can't even remember their name. Uh, it shows how insignificant they were. Um, anyway, I have a list of individual um, interesting stories, like quick things that you uh, that can be gone through. Um, about the U.S. things you know you'd often miss unless you you know you kept your finger very close to the pulse, particularly about you know American politics for some reason. Um, let's have a look. So number one, uh, Michael Bloomberg obviously joined quite recently, and I have an article about on my website tradefuture.com and also perspectives. Check that out. Um, Bloomberg. Um, uh, his campaign used prison labor to do their um, their like their cold calls for people. Um, that was a very exciting headline that I saw uh, on certain publications, and I, I I read that and I I laughed very loudly and I was like, okay, that's that's insane. How is that possible? And it's a little bit better when you first hear about it because basically it's a company which um, has a number of call centers and their primary. Uh, the primary place they the call centers they have are prison ones. They have they have prisoners who who are paid money to do cold calls, um, and this sounds not the worst thing because you'd assume they're getting paid minimum wage. The company claims they pay the minimum wage, but they don't pay the prisoners minimum wage. They pay the prisons the minimum wage. Uh, the actual wage the the um prisoners will be getting is similar much closer to one or two dollars a day generally um which is you know basically slave labor in modern day america um which uh in in fairness the bloomberg campaign as soon as they found out about that part and it was you know made public i guess found out in terms of made public they immediately they said okay this is terrible we didn't really know sorry we uh, we despise these actions and we're not and they cut ties with them but still pretty funny um and quite a quite a damning start to his um random emergence into this campaign um next up i have uh mayor pete uh not a huge fan of his um he in the last debate as i mentioned earlier got a lot of shtick for um having a very high average donation um essentially showing that he he wouldn't be a man of the people he would be a man of you know billionaires the establishment uh and in a in quite a sneaky way um he attempted to lower this um, this average donation to make it seem like he is more of a man of a people. And that was by um, releasing a competition on his website to see who could give the lowest donation. Um, in a sense, attempting to drop his average down in a sneaky way to make it seem like he isn't corrupt and taking essentially what are bribes. Um and it has it has worked to a certain extent. So I wouldn't be surprised in the next debate if we see a clip of, Bo- of Edge going, "You see, Bernie, you 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 said last time that I didn't have a uh, a um, you said my average donor was so high that I'm not I'm not man of people. Mine mine's even lower than yours now. Uh, out of this very sneaky trick. But thankfully, it got picked up on Twitter quite quickly and even got covered by some middling sized um, media companies. You know, never get mainstream coverage, but. Uh, it's quite funny to see him attempt to weasel his way um, out of, you know, taking money from from billionaire donors and his famous wine cave. Um, what have we got next? Trump's fundraising has skyrocketed post impeachment proceedings um, to phenomenal levels. He raised something like the most money like a president has raised in like a single day. It was uh, it was something possibly even like a million in about twenty four hours, maybe, maybe forty eight, maybe a bit less. But it was a phenomenal amount of money he's raised, and this sort of plays into the uh the concept that the Democrats in their um, striving attempts to um, uh, impeach Donald Trump have really done nothing but help him in a sense. It made his base feel like oh, there it's even more you know there's more of this liberal elite trying to stop the man who's, you know, tearing up the establishment. He's making real change. And this is another example of them simply doing nothing but trying to stop them. Um, yeah, that's, it's quite a phenomenal story. Fundraising questions. Uh, yeah, I covered that already. Um, the Sparrow media coverage was a very interesting story. I'm sure I'll be able to have that in much greater detail. But essentially, there was a great study done across um, mainstream media in America, which showed that in comparison to polling, there was huge disparities in how much coverage you got. So for example, Pete Buttigieg had something like a 7% gap between, I'm um, oh, sorry, it was Amy Klobuchar, who had a 7% gap in between her polling levels and amount of coverage, or her gap between what Bernie should be getting. Bernie was minus 11% from his polling to his coverage, whilst people, especially Buttigieg and Klobuchar, had a phenomenally greater amount of time in terms of their coverage than you would expect for someone polling at that level. Of course, you wouldn't expect it to be, you know, perfectly equal. You can have candidates who are low polling who would get more coverage because, you know, they're rising up or they're, they're new. They're interesting or they offer something different. But it's it's such a difference. It just shows the extreme amount of bias in American mainstream media. Something is really it's not a myth. There are people who believe that Bernie is not given a proper, um, who is given a proper hearing, but it simply just isn't true. He's barely ever mentioned. Um what's next uh biden has said he would probably have a he would consider having a republican running mate bit odd i guess um in this time where they're quite a divided party i I get the sentiment of wanting to heal divides and you know i trump tore this country apart i'm going to build it back together but the republican party has been so consistently obstructive to everything the democrat parties wanted to do i don't understand why because you're not going to do anything. You're, you're it's literally just a voice in there stopping anything that you could possibly want to do. I mean, what does he want? He wants to, his Medicare plan is to expand Obama, expand and protect Obamacare. There's virtually zero Republicans who in any manner would be fine with that. Expanding would be the last thing they could possibly you know, dream of or dream of, have a nightmare of um so i think it's quite an odd decision i think tulsi gab had the same she said who, i don't think she said vp though but she'd say she said she'd consider her cabinet which is better in a sense but still a bit not so happy about that i understand the sentiment of appealing to both sides and i especially understand for tulsi because her her i guess her the only thing that she really has now in this field is that she's very popular amongst the other side she is a strong she appeals to a wide spectrum of people which i think Whilst her polling isn't as high as other candidates, that gives her some form of legitimacy, in that she has this coverage and she's very popular amongst Trump supporters, for example. But in fairness, so are you know Yang and uh, Bernie. They are actually the, statistically the three most popular candidates amongst Republicans and amongst Trump supporters. Specifically, are Bernie, Yang, and uh, Tulsi. Um, and of course, there's also the uh, the ba- the battle of the bottom tiers. Who's the best of the worst? Who's and is there a diamond in the rough in this campaign so far? um it's quite an interesting question because there have been you know, especially in the early debates there was a lot of um i guess crab bucketing where you have the the lower candidates fighting each other and then letting the top three bernie um warren and biden sort of sit relatively pretty apart from a couple people pushing but there was great scraps. there was strong scraps amongst like cory booker for example had quite a lot of uh beef with a couple others and there was a great one with beto back when he was involved with Pete Buttigieg, and they had a good back and forth about the opioid crisis. Um, is there a diamond in the rough amongst the low tiers, amongst the, you know, the the, the the people who aren't as greatly known? I wouldn't really say so. I think Tulsi's all right. I like Tulsi. I think she's. I think she I believe. I think she believes what she says, and I, I think she cares. But I don't think there's anyone who we're really missing out. I don't think there's an Obama this year. I don't think there's someone who's kind of sitting in the sidelines, kind of, you know, just hanging out, being quiet, and, and then suddenly will explode. That was what they wanted Beto to be. That's what they wanted Buttigieg to be, but it hasn't really panned out. Um, so I think that is—I don't think there is a diamond in the rough, but it is—it is exciting certainly to watch more conflict amongst those who would be considered quite aligned. I think one—I'm—I'm I'm not a massive fan of Cory Booker, but I think what he's done relatively well so far is he—he he hasn't been that afraid to attack people on his level or in his his region of kind of being the centrist person, and I think that makes sense. Because you can't have more than one centrist voice. The centrist strategy in American politics has always been, it's me or crazy Bernie. Or it's me or, you know, I guess, if you're an American, crazy Warren. Uh, um, But since there's so many other centrist options, it's not really a viable, it's not really a viable thing. There's not really a clear centrist choice. I guess that's why they tried to cut each other out quite early on. Um, So yeah, is there a diamond in the rough? I would say probably not, but there's some decently performing people who are still in this race even though they are a bit lower like i said with tulsi they have other factors which which can give them some form of legitimacy in still being in this race um okay and i think i'm probably going to begin to wrap this up there um thank you very much for listening this has been the first episode of dutiful future um please check out dutiful future.com if you want to uh it's got my articles on there a lot of similar you know american politics coverage but a lot of other things we got like there's an article on you know trade unions in the gaming industry sports in the soviet union It's a big mix um and as of next week it will, this will be a far more guest focused show so it won't just be rambling angrily about american politics for an hour as much as i wish it could be that um so stay tuned there will be uh you know, quite a big leap in topics, you know, we've got things planned, things about the future of the gaming industry, things about, you know, conservative politics, uh, potentially even some uh, interesting coverage about the Channel Square Massacre and how that's sort of expanded and, uh, you know, um, continues to echo through global politics. Um, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed. Uh, th- this has been Hugh Smiley with Dutiful Future. and I.